everyone. Welcome back to Reality 2.0. I am Katherine Druckmann, and joining me today are Doc Searles and Bill Wendell, who is who's going to talk to us a little bit about real estate and the intersection of tech and real estate and, and surveillance capitalism and some really good stuff. Um, I'll let Doc introduce him in a minute, but before we get started, I wanted to remind everyone to check out our website, reality2cast.com, sign up for our newsletter. Uh, and I also wanted to thank all of our Patreon supporters and our coffee supporters and all of our supporters and listeners and people who, who send us all these kind emails. Thank you so much for listening and indulging us listening to our uh, opinions about <laughs> life and technology. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out was that we added a new t-shirt because sometimes on weekends I have fun making t-shirts and sometimes I express my opinions about, oh, say Apple's new policy and make a t-shirt that says the screeching voice says of the minority. And so if you wanted to check that out, uh, you know, it's, it's there now. So, so yeah. Doc, why don't you uh, take over and introduce us to Bill? Yeah, I, I should add, by the way, about the T-shirt that it was an, a rare lapse of a rare lapse of uh, of manners on Apple's side to call people who objected to their new CSAM thing as screeching whatever it was. Yeah. So that 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 uh, explains the T-shirt. I, I I wanted to I, I wanted to introduce Bill because, um, and in fact, I, I wanted to pull him into the show because, uh, as some of you know, I've been running this project at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard for since 2006 and the whole idea is to empower individuals in the marketplace and and to start developing solutions to business problems that can only be solved or best be solved from the customer side and bill has been on board with that from the beginning or maybe even before the beginning his company is real estate cafe he's in cambridge mass uh, he won't like that I'm about to tell you this, but he actually played football for Harvard as well <laughs> back in the decade. <laughs> so don't mess with him. Uh, it, Bill knows more about real estate than anybody I know, and uh, and so I, you know, I wanted to bring him in here because real estate is the, for those of us who end up buying it, it's the biggest purchase we'll ever make in almost every case, and unless we're in the in the yacht region <laughs> or something like that, and. And it's a really uh, difficult market right now. The prices are going through the roof. Um, it has a lot of the signs, at least to me, as an amateur looking at it from the outside of something of a bubble. There are, you know, it's a woefully complex marketplace. There's a lot that people don't know when they get into it. Um, there are many different players that some of us don't know. So, so Bill, just give us a kind of high level on on where we're at with all this right now and why, you know, uh, it, it help us make sense of it. Sounds good, Doc. Well, I'm going to start by saying I remember when we met in 2006, and it's really interesting to see how many people are comparing right now to 2006, because uh, that, of course, was the peak of the last housing um, boom. And so the question is, are we there again? So I'm glad that you began by telling a little of my personal story that um, I think some of us are naturally defenders and some are promoters. And um, I've chosen to play defense in real estate. And that means um, protecting home buyers. There's literally a legal role called the buyer agent. And I tell people that it's like, um, I see the industry upside down and backwards. I'm on the buyer side, not the seller side. My goal is to get them the lowest price, not the highest price. And so that puts my peer group at odds with an industry 
which has a built-in seller bias, which we're witnessing right now on an epic scale. Some Fox, Fox uh, News called what's happening in real estate right now a dumpster fire, and I would agree. So it, we, we always hear, the, often hear this, that uh, the agent doesn't matter who, they're, who hires them, they're always working for the seller because that maximizes their income. They get a piece of the take, right? Yeah. And it, it, how, well, how well is your business, I mean, in, in a, in a, not your business personally, but, but the buyer agent business doing in a, in a market that's basically rigged for the seller no matter what, it seems. Yeah, yeah. The bad news is that the buyer agency movement is on life support. It probably uh, was at its peak about 20 years ago. It looked like um, it was gonna be a player in the industry. And actually 30 years ago, a gentleman named Steve Brobeck, uh, then executive director of the Consumer Federation of America, recognized the same tension you're alluding to, Doc, which is if you're getting paid out of the sales price, don't you have at least a subconscious desire to get that commission check? So he proposed uh, what we call uncoupling the commission. The real estate commission is a two-sided fee. It's built into the sales price. If your property is in the MLS, you have to offer a cooperating fee. So Brobeck 30 years ago predicted um, if those two fees were pulled apart, that consumers would save 10 billion with a B, 10 billion a year. Well, 30 years later, that figure has been uh, revised upward to 30 to 50 billion a year. So arguably back of the envelope math, consumers have been overcharged a half a trillion dollars in fees over the past 30 years because of this unnatural tying of commissions. So, so, okay, there, there are some other situations going on right now too. They, when, I mean, we've bought a number of houses over the years and uh, in the old days, there were a lot of independent real estate agents and they were known for their independence and they kind of sold themselves as independent. And now, you know, not only is there, are there lots of new kind of, you know, we're in the platform world now, you know, so there's sort of the equivalent of the Apple, Google, Facebook, Twitter world in the, in the world of real estate with some companies that didn't even exist 20, 25 years ago, like Zillow and Redfin. And they're playing a new role here. And then there are these people you call um, iBuyers, which are investing buyers. Right. And, and I actually heard something this morning, which I may not have heard it right, but it's, it sounded right. Uh, we're in Indiana now. And that hmm. a huge percentage of the rental market, of the rental housing in Indianapolis, which is one of the you know, top 30 cities in the U.S., are outside investors, they're not local owners. And, yeah, yeah. and so w the fear that I have, and I think a lot of us may have, is that, is that the idea of home ownership, of personal home ownership yeah. may be going out the window because all the, the investors are gonna get involved and then all of a sudden we're all gonna be renting because we can't afford to buy and they've, they've soaked up the inventory. Yeah. So that's sort of several topics at once. So if you could kind of pull those apart for us, that'd be great. Sure, let me try to pull some of those apart and, and lead me through the conversation if I miss some of them. So the mom and pop shop, the demise of the mom and pop shop, that one, that one um, hurts personally because um, I enjoy being a solo entrepreneur. I know a lot of solo real estate agents. I think they have high integrity and deep knowledge. In fact, I call them real estate sages 
my test of whether you're a sage or not is whether you've been through one boom or bust cycle. Um, the industry now has 2 million agents. Uh, a lot of people jump in because there's the perception of easy money. So we actually have more agents than houses for sale. And some of those agents have chosen to go with big brand names. And by definition, then they are part of a giant conflict of interest machine. I don't think fiduciary duties scale. I don't think you can represent a buyer when your house has got, I don't know, 100 listings that you're trying to get the maximum price and you're the only person in the office trying to get the lowest price. I just, I, that doesn't square with me. It's a conflict of interest. I buyers, I would say are the shape shifters of real estate. I'll repeat that, the shape shifters of real estate. When you meet with a buyer or seller, you're supposed to make it clear whose side you're on. I believe every state requires what they call an agency disclosure. And it's just, am I working for you or working against you? Well, there's something called self-dealing, which is I'm actually in it for myself. Um, some of us call realtors dealters. They're in it for the commission check. Well, the iBuyers are actually in it to buy your house. So the role that they once, the, the default that we once assumed in real estate, that the person you were meeting with was there to help you sell your home, or if you're a buyer, help you buy your home, is now coming to say, before we have that conversation, you probably don't really wanna do all the work you need to do to fix this place up and sell it, right? Would you consider an all cash offer if I can make it to you sitting right here? And some of the surveys are saying as many as 70% of buyers are saying, or sellers, excuse me, these are homeowners saying, yeah, tell me about it. So that's, that's uh, created an unlevel playing field. And as you said, um, we now have a generation of young people competing with institutional buyers. And it really has gone to the heart of the American dream. And I would say as a baby boomer, it's, a, it's really a morality play. Are we gonna be the first generation to take the money and run? Or are we gonna pass on our housing to the next generation at a price that allows them to enjoy the quality of life? They call it generation priced out. This sounds hopeless. <laughs> so, so, so well, I'm wondering. Let me know, stay with that. Yeah. That is why young people are calling this a dumpster fire. Other people are, I mean, no less than Robert Schiller, Nobel Prize winning economist, said this is the wild west of real estate. Uh, a peer of mine, uh, who's the head of the Massachusetts Planning uh, Council, as to Area Planning Council, he says it's the worst market he's seen in 40 years. I would agree with him. There are lots of, I call it peak real estate dysfunction. Lots of very strange things happening that are distorting just pricing. You know, in, uh, in the big short, uh, Michael Burry is quoted as saying that whenever you have uh, a great deal of complexity and opacity in a, in a marketplace um, and, and very high prices, it's a bubble. It, it's going mm -hmm. to burst at some point. But it seems to me that this one may be enough of a shell game where even the people reporting on it, you know, don't know enough about it to yeah. to pull it apart and say, here's what's wrong with it. And then the regular I guess, I assume the regulators are are as in this in some ways as anybody else. 
but well, I don't it depends know. on depends on what level. So at the state level, the research done by the Consumer Federation of America again, Steve Brobeck is the point person there for real estate. Uh, it's been the case of the fox guarding the chicken coop for decades. Uh, in fact, I know he's updating his 2006 report as we speak. Um, so, but at the, at the national level, as Joyce discovered, um, there's a new sheriff in town and uh, the executive order out of the White House named real estate as one of the injury industries that needs a uh, top to bottom analysis of are there anti-competitive practices here that are inflating transaction costs as well as property costs to consumers? I, you know, something you said earlier made me wonder about um, this, these statistics that I have read about the U.S. homeowners. So among U.S. homeowners, the value of their primary residence is a very large portion of their net worth. Correct. And I wonder if that fact is also at odds with the system because then you then it's sort of the the social responsibility maybe yeah. falls upon these individuals yeah. who are so re reliant on the value of their property yeah. you know, and and they're in a weakened position in relation to the system quote unquote you know the yeah. the larger entities that perpetuate you know the the system that we're in that that prevents younger people from buying in like if you didn't buy in in time and if you know i i shudder to think of how difficult it would be for me if i were just a little bit younger yeah. uh, to scrape together a down payment to you know do all of the things necessary to buy a house and and but shifting that that sort of so the moral the morality onto individual homeowners is also problematic because you know they're in a position where you know that's that is their security that's their yeah. safety net and so, yeah. so I don't know, like, how do you reconcile those issues? I hear the tension that you're speaking about, and it is, it's troubling. I assumed that housing was a human right in the U.S., and I was surprised to find that the U.S. <laughs> yeah. is among the countries where it is not a human right. Absolutely not. So there's a very, Unfortunately. very dynamic woman out of Canada who was formerly with the U.N., who is among the people who is trying to lead a global movement that we need to realign the moral compass that housing in fact should be a human right. And I find that hopeful. Um, how we get there from here, I don't know. As you say, there is a, uh, I would say there's a generation of baby boomers who have rigged the housing market to enrich themselves. I mean, we changed the tax laws. Uh, we have created, uh, artificial purchasing power over the past decade with uh, low interest rates. And so we look really good on paper. <laughs> and uh, about two years ago, uh, Zillow, well, actually about eight years ago, um, I think it's City Lab did a story uh, called The Great Senior Sell-Off. And they basically said that the, the next generation can't, can neither afford nor do they want these houses. That senior sell-off has yet to come and um, in part because baby boomers do associate their security with the value of their home. And so they're staying there. Yeah. In fairness to them, we also have a tremendous imbalance in the inventory of the market. 
if uh, you lost a spouse and you thought, you know, I'm haunted by this house, I just want to buy an affordable condo, you may not have that option in your city. Hmm. That's interesting. How is that? I just, I would just assume there are, there are plenty of on the city. condos and smaller places like that that you can pick up but maybe well, they're, they're there are plenty there. where i am <laughs> yeah. Yeah, i have one i can sell <laughs> it, it is a market by market situation but just a quick stat i believe that 28 percentage of adults now are single person households and i believe that 85 percent of our housing inventory is oriented to single family or larger so um and it is that low hanging that first rung of the housing ladder that both first-time home buyers and empty nesters are competing for. So I want to pull this into the language of intent casting, which is that, you know, one of the problems in the current supply-demand imbalance is that we have an imbalance of what exists in the marketplace. And um, certainly the economics of new construction forced people to build larger, more expensive homes. But I think we also, with intent casting, we will have, in a sense, a real-time housing census. And if you're a city planner wondering what's the highest and best use for that parcel that the church used to own, but now they're out of business, like 100,000 faith communities across the country, 100,000 of them may go out of business. What's the highest and best use for that parcel of property? Is it, is it luxury condos or is it downsizer units or first-time homebuyer units and i think intent casting will help answer that question and doc that's why i'm excited yeah that's a you, you teed up a good one for us or for us both to explain to the listeners what intent casting is um that's where um i'll just go I'll rewind just a little tiny bit which is that uh when we started the project at the berkman klein center the one of the purposes there was to improve the way that demand and supply signal each other. And what we live in an economy that where the, where the supply side has got all the advertising and makes all the noise and the demand side basically just chooses what they see. And the idea is that anybody should be able to intent cast, cast their intent to buy something that could be anything, but real estate is one of them. You know, I'm looking for for a house that's near this church and this school, you know, uh, whatever. I mean, there are a whole bunch of variables that might be involved in that. But they're they're casting their intent. It's it's sort of like very narrow broadcasting through a system that is not rigged for the seller. It's rigged for it's it's rigged to maximize contact between both sides. And that, in fact, is why uh, we, you know, my wife and I, are in Bloomington, Indiana, right now because we're working huh. on on intent casting in uh in the public marketplace in various places we're looking at farmers markets and other things but we very much want to work we already are working with bill and his cohort on this we want to see it happening in real estate so so there's that's part of it but the idea but we're we're actually looking at new tech that's outside the web it's outside um uh it's outside any existing platform it's not platformable in the same way and so it can't be trapped in quite the same way like it, you know you have it's more like a real public marketplace where anybody can say what they're looking for and, and, you know, the sellers can match that or ignore it or do whatever they please, but, but they can find each other. 
Could you, um, I know Hadrian is not in the conversation. Can you talk about algorithms? Because um, I, actually, I, I'll, I'll do better than that. I'll pull in okay. somebody who I know is on this call who okay. invented the term algorithm. All right. All right. <laughs> so, <laughs> there, here she comes. Hi, this is Joyce Searles. And um, yeah, okay, we can talk about algorithms. There's a couple of things that as this conversation has progressed, I've had. Um, thoughts about. Um, and uh, the idea of what's happening in real estate now is so, Doc and I have been talking about this recently. I just want to wind back to this thought where Bill was talking about the institutional buyers, the I buyers. And, and what I've been saying is it's like the family farm movement, that family farms uh, sold out to agribusiness and mm. it was that was the way that agriculture became big ag and there but before that uh, agriculture in the U.S. was all family farms and my fear about residential real estate is that these are our family farms now mm. and what will happen next is that the iBuyers will come in and there'll be agricultural type giant conglomerates. So it'll be residential real estate giant conglomerates that buy and run. And we then have to, you know, get our housing from the, the equivalent of big ag. So I, 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 the reason I really care about it is because I have been a small landlord and I've been a small homeowner. And I really think that there's so much power to having your own agency and your own way of of you know running your own business your own show even if you have a job at a corporation but if you own some a cup a duplex or something and that you are as a small landlord you have a sense of agency so why real estate really resign resounds with me in this is like let's not do what happened to big ag to 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 the american dream the actual american dream which is, you know, owning your own home. So I wanted to just start with that. And then now I can say a little bit about what we're, we're doing with this on our Customer Commons nonprofit, um, building something called the Byway, which is uh, the alternative to the web. The web is the highway. Remember the information highway that Al Gore talked about? Um, well, the information highway turned out to be basically your choice of big tech, you know, your choice of platform. You can be on, you can, you have full agency as long as you're, you know, selling on eBay or selling on Amazon or, or buying uh, on any of the big, or you, you know, you're driving for Uber or whatever. So the, the big platforms have, uh, have cop captured in the same way that I was talking about with big ag have, have captured tech. Now let's just use the internet to take the byway, which is kind of like, you know, the back roads of America. So it's the back roads of tech so that I can just connect with whoever it is. Maybe I want to sell my house. I'm getting ready to sell my house maybe, or, or my parent is getting ready to sell and, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but if 
I have the availability of connecting with, you know, locals in my community who might be interested in buying my house, if I can connect with them directly without the giant industrial system that is industrial real estate, then I might really have a very satisfying transaction and have the, the right outcome for what I want. And I believe that the baby boom generation, which Bill really spends a lot of time talking about, is ripe for this. We're like, we want to do the right thing for the next generation. And so why, if we, if we not saying everybody's going to do it, there's plenty of people who will do it the way, whatever way that is out there to be done, but have a, have an alternative. So, uh, and okay. So the question actually was palgorithms. The palgorithms, yeah. I kind of went pretty far afield from palgorithms. <laughs> no, but it's a good, it's great background. But the idea is, is that, um, that I, my platform, my machine is my platform so that I could have an algorithm that runs on my data and that runs on what I'm concerned with and my financials and my ownership and that I would have an algorithm which would work on my personal data and help me to figure out what I should do. And that I could buy this from an independent app store. It doesn't have to be an app store that's run by Google or Apple. And it would be an app of my own, an app for me. So that's why we called it a palgorithm, like personal algorithm, but also my buddy. And, and that it, it reports to me. So it's not out there, you know, giving information to the, some larger platform. So that's, that's a palgorithm. And, and, and that's where we get technical. I mean, so this yeah. is a, sort of a technology uh, podcast. And um, it's always been interesting to me that we don't have algorithms of our own because we actually don't have enough data of our own that's really our own in a form you can put into that. But if we really had something else that Joyce wanted in 1995 and we still don't have, which is our, our own personal dashboard or cockpit that has all of our health and financial and property and other information, you know, that's actually pretty complex when you start adding it up and you've been on earth for a while. That's, that's a lot of stuff. What am I paying? You know, what, what debts do I, what debts am I carrying? What, what have I bought already? I forgot that I had, you know, what's, there's all kinds of information there that could be really useful to know. My contacts, my calendars, all those things ought to be in my own dashboard. But we've, you know, because the web is a client server system um, where we're always the client and never the server in most cases. Now I realize a lot of geeks on this call, on this uh, are run their own servers, but in a generalized sense, most of us do not have that agency, and we should. So let's but start over. If I so, may ju jump in, I just wanted to say, Joyce, I think the two points you made, or the point Doc made about the home dashboard and the point you made about palgorithms, I think they may come together on um, a new real estate ecosystem where you own your own your property's identity and you choose when to permission people to know things about the house or to know that within five years uh, you hope to relocate back to XYZ. Um, right now, these are inferences that surveillance capitalism is making watching you as you 
move from site to site across the internet. So you're actually unintentionally signaling your intention and they're guessing what that intention is. But to be right. able to own your intention, uh, own the digital identity of your house, I think is a very exciting future. And I think you're the, this is the tool builder conversation that we need to have. So I'm glad you mentioned that actually, because I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about the problem that this solves, which is, uh, you know, what I mean by that is the current landscape and the current sort of ecosystem of, of real estate technology and what's actually the reality today, because I think maybe a lot of our listeners might not know that much about technology, the, the technologies as they apply to the real estate market and, and the kind of surveillance capitalism, like you, mean, like you mentioned, um, that the real estate industry applies. Okay, so um, I want to take a step back 11 years and say that uh, Doc invited me to participate at an event called um, something at the Harvard Business, Harvard Law School, I forget what it was called. Uh, we had a number of those. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I, I felt totally inadequate, but I thought if I aspired to write a mini-festo, maybe I could pull that off. So instead of a manifesto, I wrote a mini-festo. And I've literally got that document in front of me and I'm gonna use it to open up Catherine's question. And point number 22 on that manifesto was that decisions to buy and sell homes are preceded by a continuum of intention. Exactly the book Doc wrote around that time. And um, so how does the real estate industry work right now? Well, they spend about $10 billion a year on guess what, lead generation. And intent casting is all about owning your own intention and simply putting that out to the market. So as these lead generation companies try to guess what kind of life transition you might be going through because of the unintentional signals you're sending to the marketplace, some of them literally ask permission to read former clients' emails and they will make guesses about whether you're going through a life transition and then they will flag that former client for the agent and say, I'm not gonna tell you whether it's a divorce or a high school graduation or a death in the family, but there looks like a life transition there. Why don't you get in touch with them? So that's one way the industry gets leads. There's also a whole industry within the industry of what they call predictive analytics. Again, they're watching hundreds of data points about your house and they literally uh, come up with different things that roughly are all move scores. What's the probability that you might move? So with two, two million agents competing for 5 million listings a year, there's intense competition to be the one who gets to sell your house. And the way those decisions are made is once a lead looks like they want to talk to you, you get a listing appointment, you go to the house and you say, this is what our company can do for you. Or would you take this cash offer right now? Um, yeah, that's some good background. I think, um, yeah, it's funny how there are certain, <laughs> I think, I, you know, as a, as a younger technical person, I think there are a lot of industries that let's say geeks like me are not that familiar with. I personally am pretty familiar with real estate for other reasons, but 
but it is sort of interesting to go beyond, let's say, the, the Facebook and the, the Instagrams and the sort of the, the, the retail tracking and that sort of thing to think of how these things apply to something uh, like real estate, because I think it's, it's not necessarily something that, that a lot of people consider. Well, there's one, there's one other anchor I should put in my reply to you, and that is for decades, people who have used what they call the multiple listing service. So these 2 million agents, because their legal duty is to get the highest price, if they're on the listing side, their job is to get the highest price for you. So they maximize the exposure to the marketplace by putting your property into a multiple listing service. And this is one of the areas that, um, has really gone, undergone some very controversial changes and where we're now seeing listing data silos instead of shared access to listings and that puts upward pressure on housing prices. So Bill, let, let's, let's dive into that for a little bit. In the old days, because as I said before, I was involved with real estate years ago, um, the public did not have access to um, the MLS, the multiple listing service. So you actually had to go get uh, an agent to be able to expose homes for you. And that was, that was the, really a, a lot of the power of the agent was that they could give you exposure to houses. So the platforms, when they came along, the Zillows and um, Redfins and all of that, that they, they blew that open and it was a huge boon for for the public to be able to actually see this on their own. I remember when I was trying to find stuff, like I would have a real estate agent friend who would be able to look up for me, even though I wasn't actively a buyer or a seller, but I wanted to know what was going on in the market and I wasn't an agent. So I think that was a good thing that we got this way of seeing what was on MLS. But the, the sad news is, is that because, um, now there's this open way of saying everything that's available. Now the advantage of knowing something that isn't open and available becomes the thing that everybody's trying to have. They want like a pre-MLS uh, listing service. So, so in, in the old days, there used to be something called a pocket listing, which would maybe be one, one agent would, would know about uh, one listing. But now it, there's a whole series of, of listings that are held off the market. And what it does is it makes the market look like it's, there's the less inventory available than there actually is. I think it'd be really interesting for you to um, explain to the, to the listeners about that and how, how tech really you know, made that possible because of the, because of the platform situation. Well, I'll make a first pass at it and, and pull out things that I miss. Um, so you're absolutely right. The original MLS was actually a phone book size document that would come out about on Thursday. And then you would arrange appointments with your clients and go driving and you would hand them the MLS book like it was some kind of sacramental document <laughs> and they would have to agree to give it back to you in a, before they left the car. So that was, the, the internet began making access to agents. Agents began sharing listings around 96. By 2000, the question was, are we gonna open this to the public? And people who were first movers and who said, I'm gonna share my MLS access with the public actually risked disciplinary action. So I would say 
the golden era of public access to the MLS was roughly 2004 to 2014. By then it was not an unreasonable statement to say everything that's for sale is not only in the MLS, but it's in these real estate portals. And of course, Zillow uh, became an early leader there and, and actually bought one of their competitors, Trulia. So I believe um, the lowest statistic I saw was that Zillow has 1.8 million visitors per day, Realtor.com 1.4. It's a hairball of statistics, so I'm just going to leave it at the, the number of people who visit these sites are stunning. Mill tens of millions of people per month visit these sites. So why did I cut it off in 2014? Well, at that point, there was an expose in California that the MLS played an important role in less than half of all sales. So here you have this myth that you can get access to all the listings when in fact half of them are being sold uh, essentially through an underground housing market or through friends of friends. You know, I, I have a tendency to maybe shame people too much, but access to information is essential to have a just functioning marketplace. And if half the inventory is being hidden and uh, Codwell Banker calls it their exclusive look program, I believe, or first look. Um, uh, Compass is shameless in saying, hey, our, we're staking our competitive advantage on having exclusive listings. Um, you know, these are, these are problematic because now you have exacerbated a real problem, low inventory, and so you've created artificial upward scarcity value. And at some point that's simply unsustainable. And I think we passed that point already. And I love the statistics coming out of San Francisco and other cities. I believe that San Francisco itself, the price of single family homes fell 5% month over month. In the Bay Area, they fell 3% uh, month over month. They're still way over where they were last year, but last year we were still coming out of the pandemic statistics. So this is really an, I think, a very interesting shift. And in it, the story is, you know, how technology plays. And it's not just the tech, it's not the internet's doing it. It's the way the business has uh, evolved to um, creating, you know, sort of the, the big tech approach, the aggregation approach to, um, to, get privileged information because yeah. everybody yeah. knows that the way if you're if you're trying to buy something if you walk up and down the street and tell everybody i want a black skirt size 10 you're not going to get the best price <laughs> you know everybody knows for sure i need a black you know like anybody that's got one will will say you know buy mine and it's whatever but you're not going to get the best price unless you keep close what it is that you know so there's always this bot back and forth between the buyer and the seller. But when you have the buyer and the seller in the room together, they find out what it is that is to their advantage. But when they're held apart by other, other parties, that's when the other, when they don't, they're not able to make the best deal for each other. I mean, that's, they're not that's just my view of the market. Yeah, Joyce, they're not just held apart. They actually, once 
once the express once a property does hit the marketplace, whether it's pre MLS or in the actual MLS, we the industry has a blind bidding system. People engage in blind bidding wars, and often they're bidding against their own fear of loss. And if I had one magic wand wish that I would love to have seen, and, per, and I would say falling prices make it even more urgent, we need an emergency real estate transparency act. Now, mm. being realistic, I don't think a legislature is gonna act that quickly, but my God, why aren't we talking about price gouging in real estate? Um, essentially, that's what's happened. We've taken scarcity, and I believe San Francisco leads the country in the percent of homes sold 30% over asking price. I mean, that just makes you throw up your hands and say, crazy time, mm -hmm. Some, something's going on. And it's bidding, you're bidding against the unknown. It's a blind process. And I hope it ends up in a class action lawsuit a couple of years from now. That's the kind of punchback we need from consumers. And thank God the Department of Justice has reopened their invest their inquiry into the industry and they they have a none, nothing less than executive order out of the White House to do their work. Bill, if you were if you were um, a regulatory god, I mean I, I think there's I think this is the kind of thing we need two two things. One is technology solutions like the ones that Joyce and I are working on and you as well. Um, and the other is actually regulatory help. What would you what would you recommend there? I mean, if you were to wave your magic uh, wand or your magic uh, ghost of the MLS. Uh... What would be my regulatory wish list? You know, I did a lot of thinking about this, inter this interview and I actually did not pull up that question. So I'm just <laughs> gonna pull things off the top of my head. So there's a very sharp guy in the industry uh, named Rob Hahn, and he's an attorney, and he says many of the same things I do, and uh, he might say that's an overstatement. I would say I've said some of the things that he now says years before he did. And Rob is warning that the government's gonna go after the realtor organization itself, that uh, it has a three-level organization, national, state, and local. It has, mandatory fees, and it imposes its will coast to coast. And so when the question of should pocket listings be outlawed came up and the industry did what they, they called it a clear cooperation policy. I call it a clear cover-up policy. They basically gave a blessing to various forms of hiding inventory and what I call the inventory gate like Watergate, Inventory Gate. I think it's a scandal that needs more reporting. And, and in hindsight, two years from now, we'll know the magnitude of it. You know, when, you, when you're a renter and you're thinking of moving, you have to tell the utility company, I'm gonna be moving on such and such a date. I think public disclosure of intent to sell, I would like to see that. I think one of the questions going into this decade is how are we gonna handle this intergenerational handoff? And so the timing of transitions will be as important as the price of transitions. And if mm -hmm. we're going to get it right, if we're going to correct the inventory imbalance, we need the metaphor I've been using is we need to create a transition bank because when you decide to sell could create a six figure difference in what you walk away from that property with. 
And right now, one in nine properties in Massachusetts is selling 100,000 over asking price. I don't think we're going to be there a year from now. When you say, you know, making your intent to sell public, I mean, aren't you doing that when you list when you list the house? I'm not sure I understand the subtlety, the, the difference there. Well, it's because those who were um, those who you were hiring to sell your house may not tell the market that you're selling your house. Ah, you're talking, we're going back to the pocket listings exclusively. So in this platform world that Doc and Joyce have alluded to, there's one of the big players or one of the big platforms is what they call an in-house dashboard. So there's one Mm -hmm. company locally that says they have 30,000 seller leads and 200,000 buyer leads in their in-house dashboard. They don't need an MLS, do everything in-house. And as a buyer, I mean, again, you know, that can, especially in a market like this, I would guess that that's potentially helpful. So uh, the irony is that- the If you very, can afford it. <laughs> the right. very tool that was supposed to level the playing field has actually now been thrown into reverse. Uh, another very sharp guy in the industry, Mike Del Pret, uh, says the industry has entered the dark ages of real estate that we're hiding listings in listing data silos and that's created artificial pricing. It's right. amazing. I mean, you've, you've on this dashboard you that you just mentioned, you have, you know, this many thousand, um, sellers. And then we have this swarm of buyers, like jumping on that entirely inside our own private system. And of course the prices are going to go through the roof. It's just, yeah. it's just right. naturally going to happen. I think that depends on the market and in a, in a, let's call it a quote unquote normal market. It's, I think the, you know, the in-house transactions are, are not, well, they aren't, they, it wouldn't be like it is today. I, I, speaking from experience, you know, five, six years ago, you know, you're not looking at, you know, a hundred thousand dollars over asking price in most markets. I think it's, well, but, but today Catherine, it's a completely different conversation. Yeah. The thing is Catherine normal there, you know, that I hate this, word that they're already saying the new normal but the new normal is the new normal right and that is that you know when these things can be manipulated these things can be held apart this is we're not going to get back to the normal where you know as bill was saying the sweet spot of total uh mls uh, you know disclosure was 2004 to 2014 like okay can we go back to that <laughs> right and how and how much of that to. is how much of that is the result of these big companies like zillow redfin trulia those you know coming in and and change shifting the market in the way that they have i mean is, is it is it mostly that or is that a small contributing factor is it is it something else is it you know something we haven't even considered you know i wonder you know what what made the market the way it is today well, I, it's too long for this interview, but I have actually <laughs> been tracking um, 17, it's actually up to 18 now, 18 words that start with the letter I, and I call this the I-covery, I not a recovery, but an I-covery. And the number one thing is what's happened with interest rates. So um, just some quick stats that uh, between 1990 and uh I guess it was the 10 years before the real estate, the 10 years before 9-11, interest rates were only under 8% once. After 9-11, you know, we shed jobs, the country was in tremendous anxiety. So they dropped interest rates 14 consecutive times. In 2006, the height of the dot-com bubble, or 
to the height of that boom bust, interest rates were 6.4%. Last year, we hit 16 record low interest rates, bottoming out at 2.65. So behind all that dizzying math is artificial purchasing power. We basically have made funny money. We've created dollars now that buy 50% more house. Um, let me let me say that uh, the 2.6 we're presently at 2.75. That's about 45% more house than you could buy at the peak of the last boom bust cycle. And of course, you're not getting 45% more house. You're just paying 45% more right. for the same house. <laughs> there you yeah. go. You know, That's but you, exactly you have right. That's uh, exactly. you have to get like, the funny money early. <laughs> right, right. Well, like a pyramid game, you know, you yeah. want to be in early. Um, you know, I've talked to people who, you know, about real estate in the past, and it's it, it, at some point, if you're not really into real estate or not really into watching this stuff, uh, it's really hard to grok that people don't care what the number is. It could be 2 million, 4 million, 6 million, doesn't matter. It's only how much you can pay every month. And yep. so then you take the calculation of Obviously, interest rate is the, the biggest calculation, but then there's also property taxes and there's whatever else goes along to make it. And it's only about how much can I pay every month because nobody expects they're going to pay off the 30-year loan. So I, I think that, that it's, it, all, it all goes into this stew of, of complication that people who are just like, I just want to buy a house and move on. They really just want to know what is it I have to come up with every month. And it really does a, a number because, of course, when they have to go sell, they have to get what they got out of it because it's got to cover that loan. And if that isn't going to happen in the, you know, five years later when they decide they're going to sell, because five years later, you know, the world looks different yep. and the interest rates are different and everything is different then they'll worry about it. And then you have another, you know, 2007. <laughs> yeah. Joyce, I'm glad you said move on because I want to make sure we talk a bit about transitions and the role of intent casting potentially in creating transition as a service. Um, I believe that's a phrase that you coined in one of our previous calls. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. She's good at that. <laughs> well, we have 70 million baby boomers and about half of them uh, plan to downsize. And uh, do you want to say, take it from there, Joyce? And say, well, I, I just, it transition as a service. Yeah, that, I guess people could see what that is. But the truth is, uh, from my point of view, our, the whole baby boom generation really does want to do the right thing for the next generation. And they really want to, you know, use what they have to do the right thing. And I feel like if we're able to start to signal, you know, what it is we want with the transition that is into, you know, when you're downsizing or whatever you're doing, uh, that if you have the time and you can, you know, talk to people about it without being thrown into this chaos that is the market, you know, the, the current real estate market, where you just want to th think about, I might be selling in the next five years or something. And if you could have some way 
of engaging without being thrown into the maelstrom of, okay, I've now listed my house and everything happens because they all come at me. Because as soon as you start to say, I'm thinking about selling, they come at you and you, and you, if you're really into a transition that you want to do in a thoughtful way, suddenly you're in the midst of this transactional thing. So I just think that if we had a, you know, if there was like a way of, of baby boomers having the ability to thoughtfully transition to their next stage without just like, okay, I got to get as much money for this as possible so I can move on. I mean, there's lots of places that we can look at where people, when they've done something thoughtfully, feel so much better about how, how it's turned out. And so it's good for the generation that's passing away and it's good for the younger generation because it'll, you know, if you work together, we'll, we have a much better opportunity of getting uh, a good result for humanity rather than just like, okay, more dollars for these people to pass on to their kids. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad you put that in very human terms. And um, I, I believe that psychologists say you're, you won't transition until you have a, a better vision for yourself. And so I think we have a there's a new book out called Who Do You Want to Be When You Grow Old? And it talks about how growing old is uh, a path, you know, there's no choice about growing old. The co- choice is whether you will grow happy, whether you'll grow wise, whether your last years will be your golden years. And so you may recall that I talked about return on intention. And I would, I think we have the opportunity to have a conversation about what is the intent land we want to co-create and then how do we get there as a generation and as individual consumers. And I hope that what you're doing in Indianapolis will be part of that conversation. Cool. Well, Bloomington, but close enough. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me. Thank you. That's all right. I think everything in Indiana rounds to Indianapolis somehow, (laughs) which here they call Indy. Indy, We found out. All right. Well, this has been fabulous, Bill. This has been really great. Thanks so much. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, a new perspective for a lot of our listeners. Uh, I think, you know, it's funny. We actually, we know we have a lot of international listeners too. And I think that it might be kind of interesting to, to, uh, you know, explore (laughs) the differences in their housing markets in in, in other parts of the world. And, you know, I I hope that actually our listeners will give us some feedback because it might be eye-opening. This is one of those areas, it's like healthcare, right? People people in other parts of the world are sometimes a bit shocked at how things work here versus how they they work in in other places. And I think it might be a similar similar thing. If there's Um, anyone in the listener audience who would be interested in data unions, experimenting with real estate and data unions, I would mm -hmm. love to hear from you. Yeah. Give it, give us some feedback. We love, we love to hear and, from you and, yeah. and uh, we love, we would love to hear uh, your experiences with real estate. I think most people have some experience, whether it is a, as a tenant, a landlord or a homeowner. And Bill is at, uh, he has, his website is realestatecafe.com. All one word, not hard. And I'm, my preferred method of communication is Twitter. So that's also <laughs> okay. real estate. And cafe. you were what on Twitter? You're at it's at, at Real Estate Cafe. Cool. 
Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you, you so everyone. This was thank fun. you, everyone. Yeah. Yeah, and it's thank always fun. <laughs> I always thank everyone for making it to the, this far in the episode if they have. So thank you. <laughs> if you've made it this far, we appreciate you listening to the whole episode. Until next time.